Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Point Church. Thank you so much for being here. Will you stand with me as we read through God's Word this morning? If you'd like to follow along with the reading and you need a Bible, they can be found in the seat backs in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one with you. Or if you know someone that needs a Bible, please take this one and give it to them. We'd love for you to have God's word in your hand throughout the weeks. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16. and can be found on page 888 in that Bible. Please follow along with me as I read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. God, we, uh, we, we thank you so much for the good news of John 3.16. God, we do pray for the uh, evangelistic spirit that Jason uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, God, we pray that we would just uh, grow your kingdom this year uh, at Christmas time. Uh, pray that we would uh, use these cards or use your name and just spread your word as much as we can. Pray for all these things in your name. Amen. Hey, you can grab a seat. So John 3.16, I just decided to go for it. Like there's, there's a couple of passages, I'll just be honest with you, as a, as a preacher, where I'm like, man, so like one of those, I remember one time we were going through Matthew and I was gonna preach on the Sermon on the Mount. Like the greatest sermon ever preached was by Jesus, obviously. And if you've ever been in Matthew 5 through 7, it's three chapters and Jesus preaches and it's great. And I was like, how am I gonna preach on this sermon. Why don't I just read the sermon? I don't know how many of you remember, maybe a couple of you uh, were around uh, back then, but I just stood up here and read three chapters of scripture and was like, amen. You know, that was the sermon. And so then I thought, man, the third week of Advent, our theme this week is love. So we just went right for it. We went through for John 3.16 and for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. And so as I was preparing for this, I thought, man, there's just so much happening here. Like this is, this is the greatest summary of the gospel in all of the text. This is probably the most famous scripture in all of the text. You're gonna see people holding signs up with John 3.16 at football games. I think Tim Tebow used to wear it on his face. Like it's a big deal. And so then I thought, man, I wonder if people really know the context in which that verse was given. And so what I want to do is, is read 21 verses to you. I'll pause and give you some commentary and explain some things as we go. But I want to lay a foundation of how that phrase, for God so loved the world, was even brought up or mentioned. It wasn't in a sermon that Jesus was preaching. It was in a late night Q&A discussion with a guy named Nicodemus. And it was a profound statement. I don't know if that phrase is profound for you or if it does one of those for you. But it did for Nicodemus, and it might for you as we read it in its context. And so we got a lot of work to do. I got you know, some time on the clock. It ain't red yet, so let's see what we can do before it goes red and we get into overtime. That's just what we'll do. That's just how it's going to happen. Uh, so look with me in John chapter 3, verse 1, and I'm just going to take off, all right? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, so the Pharisees was a, almost a political group with political power. It was, think, think about church. This is like church life, but church and government has all merged into one a couple thousand years ago. If you were a citizen of Jerusalem and you lived in Israel, that's kind of who these Pharisees are. Uh, there was Pharisees who, who were more like blue collar and uh, there were Sadducees who were more like white collar and they differed on the miracles and, and the Old Testament, that sort of thing. And so Nicodemus is a Pharisee and he's a ruler of the Jews, and that means he sits on this board that's called the Sanhedrin. It means he's a, he's a, 
a thought leader. He's an influencer. And so I don't know who influences you, but so maybe there's YouTube or there's athletes or there's actors, or maybe it's in our genre of church life. It may be K. Arthur Bible study or a Matt Chandler sermon or R.C. Sproul book or John MacArthur study Bible, or just think of a name that influences the way that you, uh, the lens that you see the world through, and that's who Nicodemus is to a lot of people. And so he, this man, came to Jesus by night. So we'll pause there. This, this is to show us that there's something shady or curious about this. Not necessarily that Nicodemus is trying to trick Jesus. I think maybe Nicodemus doesn't want the other members of the Sanhedrin to know that he's coming to talk to Jesus. I think that Nicodemus is curious about Jesus. Uh, We don't know any proof in the text to show that Nicodemus actually becomes a Christian, but I think he does. Um, So he's coming to Jesus at night. He probably doesn't want other people to know he's talking to Jesus. And he comes to him and he says, Rabbi. We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this is respect. This is recognition. This is Nicodemus trying to give Jesus his, his propers. He calls him rabbi, which is a big deal. And, he's, and he basically, he's saying, look, the Sanhedrin is saying you're demonic. That's what they're going to say about Jesus, <clears throat> is that he's doing these signs and wonders because he's filled with Satan. Jesus will eventually have to say, can Satan cast out Satan and and kind of throw down in a spar of words uh, later in the text. But Nicodemus is saying, I believe that you're sent from God and you're a good teacher for no one can do what you're doing, all the good things that are happening through your ministry unless God sent you. In verse three, Jesus answers him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So let's just pause there for a moment. Nicodemus is saying, I recognize that you're coming from God. And Jesus is saying, oh, really? If, if you think you can see the kingdom, here's how you see the kingdom. And what Nicodemus is going to run to is the real question that's inside Nicodemus's heart is, how can you make me good? How can you give me a good heart? Or how can you give me eternal life? He never explicitly says it, but we know Jesus knows intentions as well as actions. And so Jesus is just going to try to preach uh, to his heart in this uh, Q&A conversation. And so he says, no one can see uh, the kingdom unless he's born again. And verse four, Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Let's just stop there. Mark verse 8. I'll forget where I'm at. You can shout it out in a minute. It'll be okay, all right? Uh, Because I got just some ranting to do for just, just a minute. So basically what Nicodemus is coming to Jesus to say is like, how do you get saved? How do you get eternal life? How do you see the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. In other words, let's unpack that a little bit. There's nothing you can do to get saved. There's nothing you can do to get a good heart. There's nothing you can do to receive eternal life. There's nothing you can do to see the kingdom of heaven. That's that's the answer. In essence, that's what Jesus is saying. There's nothing you can do. You must be born again. And Nicodemus goes right to like, you know, in sixth grade, the principal came into class and gave us the talk. Like I had health class and I took biology in high school and and like, my mama ain't even with us anymore. Like, how am I gonna, you gonna put me back in the womb? And Jesus, it's a metaphor for thinking about 
How were you born? What did you do to get here? What was your work to be born and brought into this world? The answer is nothing. The question is, well, how did you get here? Skip past conception. We don't have to go there. Like, come on now. But how did you get here? Someone labored. Someone suffered. Someone was in anguish. Like, this is before epidurals. Like, I got five kids, and yes, I know how they get here. We're for it, okay? Everybody's like, do you know, it's maybe the water. It ain't the water. I know what it is, and, and I'm for it. And the, may the Lord bless. Anyways, yeah. Yeah, amen. <laughs> so we've had five babies. By we, I mean Carrie has. And there was one kid that was born, and the nurse came in the room, and Carrie's like, I'm ready for my epidural. And the nurse was like, no, honey, you're ready to have a baby. And I'm just going to say, that one was different. That's all I'm going to say about it, because I think my bride's in here somewhere. Okay, so I want you to, to think, well, you can't think back 2,000 years, but think back before medicine, painkillers, epidurals. It hurt to have a baby, hurt to have a baby. Might cost you your life. You're risking your life to have a baby. And Jesus doesn't risk his life. It costs him his life. And what he's saying is someone will go through anguish. Someone will go through suffering so that you could come into this uh, kingdom of heaven. And so that's the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of getting into the kingdom of heaven. Number one, there's nothing you do to make it happen, but there's something someone does and they will suffer and it will cost them their life so that you can be born again. Verse eight, he says, hey, don't, don't wonder. He's talking to this man who's about as spiritual as this podium. And he's saying, I know you're confused, but think about the wind. In verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Billy Graham would say, you've never seen the wind. You've seen the effects of the wind, but you've never seen the wind. That's what he said. I heard it on a DC Talk album one time. But that's what Nicodemus, or Jesus is telling Nicodemus. This is a metaphor and it's spiritual. I'm talking to you about supernatural things and you can only conceive of natural things. In verse nine, Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things, Jesus will do that to you, okay? So he's, he's mocking him, and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, he's saying, I'm... Have you ever done that to a baby? That's con, you're like, you don't speak any language yet. You just, speak. maybe that's what tongues is. I'm not sure. Like, but we go, and the kid looks at us like, I just wonder if the kid's like, Frank, come on. I, I just can't talk yet. I, in my mind, I, I speak, but I haven't formed the, anyways. I just wonder if we look insane to children, to babies, or if they're like, yeah, you're speaking my language. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm condescending. I'm trying to use earthly metaphors. You couldn't even conceive if I used heavenly metaphors, if I used unseen things, things that's not even in scripture. You wouldn't get it. And so what Jesus is saying is you're, you're not receiving our testimony because this is so different. This grace is so different than effort and earning receiving is so different than achieving. What Nicodemus really wants to know is, I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. I'm a Pharisee among Pharisees. I've done everything right all my life. Is there, what more do I do, need to do to impress God so that he'll love me? And, and he can't comprehend. You just, you need to be born again. Well, that blew his mind, okay? It blew his mind. So Jesus says, we've told you these things and you don't receive our testimony. 
And then he goes on to say, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Just pause there for a moment. Now he is like really getting at Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus would have no idea what he's talking about. You and I would have no idea what he's talking about without the chronological snobbery that we get to have because we know what he's saying. Jesus is the one who did descend from heaven. He's the word of God put on flesh. It's called the incarnation of God. He steps into human history by being born to the Virgin Mary and he lives this life. He enters human history, lives just like us in the flesh, but not like us because his, he never sins in the flesh. He's human, but still God. And so he, he descends into heaven and he's going to do a work and then ascend back into heaven. And he says, no one's done that, but I'm gonna do that. Verse 14, he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So let's pause there for a minute. Truth is always stranger than fiction. This is gonna take us all the way back to, I think, numbers. But there was a time when Moses, the great deliverer of the Israelites, who were once enslaved in Egypt, are going back to the home country, the promised land. Uh, they're going back home to the land God promised Abraham. And eventually they'll land there and they'll become a nation. They'll have a king. And, and the promise that God gave to Abraham that I'll make you a father of many nations. Well, he becomes the father of many nations after he at least becomes the father of one nation. And Moses is leading those people back to become one nation and they start complaining. They start griping. You ever been on a road trip, dads? Come on, where's, my, where's the dads at? Everyone's like, are we there yet? Like my kids would be like, are we there yet? I'm like, yeah, get out. You know, I gotta go to the bathroom, daddy, and all, all that stuff, like wear a diaper, whatever it is. Like, you know, they start to complain. And the Israelites started to complain and say stuff like, well, at least we had ribeye when we were slaves in Egypt, and ugh, God, Moses brought us out here to die. And God's like, okay, you thought I brought you out here to die? I can make good on that. And he sent fiery serpents to go and bite them and killed a bunch of Israelites. Don't look at me. I'm not apologizing. God does what he does. That's in the Bible. You take it up with him. I'm just the preacher. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard, and it's true. And so he went and got, got them. And so dads, I don't know if you want to pull out a bag of snakes on the road trip. I don't know if, how that helps with parenting. But Moses goes, God, you're going to kill everybody. God's like, if I want to. And <laughs> Merry Christmas. Anyways, <laughs> but... But God says, well, here's what you do, Moses. Moses says, what do I do? And I'm not making any of this up. My kids would think this is, I used to sit down, we'd have a meal with the kids. We still have meals, but I used to tell them stories and make them pick which one wasn't true and which one was true. I'd make stuff up like, Michael Jordan came to the church today and we had a talk. Was that true? You know, I'd make up absurd stories. This sounds like one of those stories. But God told Moses to make a bronze fiery serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up in the air. And then if any Israelite gets bit by one of those fiery serpents, if they would just look at that bronze serpent at the top of that pole, they would get life. They were dying, they'd get life. They'd be healed and they'd receive life. As absurd as that sounds, you know, we can know centuries later what was the meaning of that really weird thing back there in, I think it was Numbers. Somebody will fact check that and tell me later. But all the way back in the Old Testament, well, it was foreshadowing of the Son of Man, Christ, who will be lifted up on the cross, and anyone who would look to him would get eternal life. Not just healing from fiery serpents, but eternal life. And so that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, who would be well acquainted with that story. You and I would not be unless we had Bible commentaries, in which we do. And so Jesus is saying that I'm going to be lifted up. 
I've descended from heaven to be lifted up so that people could look to me and believe, and then I will ascend back to heaven. So whoever believes in, in my name shall have eternal life. And the four God so loved the world is connected to verses 14 and 15. So in the same capacity that the serpent was lifted up and so that all of God's people could look to that thing and, and have life, for God so loved the world. In the way God loved Israel, God loved the world and gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You need to know how, prof how profound that the statement for God so loved the world would be to Nicodemus, just for you to appreciate the verse. For, for him, if, if he would have told Nicodemus, you know, for God so loved Israel, he gave his son. Because here's what was on everyone's mind. They thought that Jesus was gonna be this political figure that was gonna make Israel great again. Israel was a nation within a nation. They were under Roman supervision. As long as they paid their taxes, they could have their church, they could have their synagogue, they could have the Sanhedrin. As long as they didn't form a military coup and try to overthrow the Roman government, that was fine. The, 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 the closest thing I can, that I've ever lived through that is growing up uh, in Cherokee County and Mace County, different places in Oklahoma where, where there was a nation within a nation like... like um, we didn't have casinos and gambling, but on, but on reservations, they could have casinos and gambling, and it was like, hey, we don't make trouble for each other outside these boundaries. Like, we do our thing over here, you do your thing over there, let's, let's not get into a war. Let's just all make sure the money goes where it needs to go, and so we can all just get along. Well, that was Israel 2,000 years ago. So many people, like Nicodemus, are curious about Jesus, like, are you going to be the one who comes that's going to be our next king and establish us as a great nation once again and overthrow Rome? And Jesus says, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. The promise that God made Abraham is, is, is coming to fruition through Christ, through this nation who's now seen her better days in, in, in days past, who's been uh, occupied by Babylon before, who's been occupied now by Rome. Through this shell of what it once was comes the Messiah who's gonna start a church that's gonna transcend all nations. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son, who's Jesus, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus would wonder, what do you mean perish? And Jesus explains our dilemma in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you are condemned. You have not received our testimony. You do not believe in my name. You are condemned. Well, what has condemned me? Verse 19, this is the judgment. That light has come into the world. Notice what Jesus is doing to the man who comes to see him in the dark. He says, light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So there's two kinds of uh, heart, uh, deeds. There's, there's um, good deeds done with a good heart and there's good deeds done with a bad heart. In essence, what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is you've done good things, but you have a bad heart. Nicodemus would say, what do I do about it? Jesus says, there's nothing you can do about it. Oh, but God loved the world but God loves you so much that he sent a son and this son Jesus will labor and suffer and anguish and through tears and sweat and blood and sacrifice and death and then the resurrection, you can be born again. You can be transformed. 
You can be made new. You can be fully forgiven. So now that we've gone through those 21 verses, let's preach a sermon. You ready? Three ideas. Three ideas that we can take away from at least the way God demonstrates his love for us. What does godly love look like? Now, you might be like me. I say that I love the cowboys. I love my family. I love a good bird dog. I love a good steak. Or what we, you, we throw love around. And generally what we mean by love is I really appreciate the way these things make me feel. It's been harder to say that about the Dallas Cowboys in recent years, but this might be our year. Anyways, somebody just booted me off the Wi-Fi. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Anyways, number one about love, if you're taking notes, that love is giving. It's giving. God so loved the world that he gave. For God gave. Love is not sentiment. Love is not emotion. Love is not the way we feel about each other. Love is what we do to each other. Love is a verb. Love does. Love moves. The thing about loving is, is loving is not, love is giving, and love is not giving to get. In many situations, we give to get. You need to just understand that's just not love. That might be appropriate. That's a contract. I'll work for you if you pay me. I'll pay you if you work for me. I'll shop here if I can afford you. I'll buy gas here if you don't rip me off. Like all those things, like that's giving to get. Here's my money to get some gas. Those are transactions. But love is not a transaction. Love is not giving to get. Love is giving to give. That's what love is. It gives to give. God gave to give, and this is the essence and root of what we call generosity. When we give a gift, we give it. And some of us give to get. That's called purchasing. That's a transaction. If you give to the church to buy influence so that you can get decisions made on your account, that's, that's buying something. That, you didn't give anything. You tried to pay for influence. If you give a Christmas gift to somebody and, and you expect them, okay, now you have to go to the school that I tell you to. Well, depends on what it is. Maybe, let's, let's make a deal. But that's not love. <laughs> that's not love. If you give something to someone to, to, use, to, to manipulate them in your life, that, that might be politics, that might be making a deal, that might be a transaction, but that's not love. Because you need to know this, God needs nothing from us. He needs absolutely nothing from us. We have nothing that God needs. There's a question we planted this church on back in 2014. We'd gather people up in living rooms and ask a series of questions. And the first question is, why did God make the world? And how you answer that question has massive implications on the way that you see God, the way you see the world, and the way that you see yourself. But I'm just gonna run to the answer. The answer is for his glory, for his own glory, God made the world to demonstrate, to radiate, to put on display his glory so that it could reflect back to him. God did not make the world because he was lonely. There was the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He had community. God did not make the world so that he could love someone. He is love. Love is God. What God does is love. Love does not define God. God defines love, okay? The philosophers, or philosophers, I can't say the word. <laughs> College people, they'll enjoy that. But God needs nothing from us. Therefore, God wants things for us. That's love. Think about this. How many of you need home runs and touchdowns and winning ball games from your kids because you're the parent of a successful child? That's not love. 
That's a transaction. That's using your child to get some kind of satisfaction and emotion and feeling. How many of you need your kid to make good grades because you're the parent of a kid who makes A's? I need you to go to this school because I'm the parent of a kid who goes to that school. How many of you approach your marriage like if you would just change, I could be happy. I need from you to complete me or whatever it is. Have you noticed that when your relationships get wonky and funky and dysfunctional and toxic, it's when you're using each other for gratification? But how about whenever you want things for your kids? What if you wanted touchdowns because that would be really good for your kid? Not because it's good for you, it's good for them. What if it's good for your kid to learn, not just perform, but learn how to learn? Learning how to learn is powerful. If you can read, you can do anything. What if you wanted something for your spouse? What if you see yourself not as someone needing something from your spouse, but a gospel life coach who your whole role in their life is to prepare them to spend eternity with Jesus, loving each other well, long-suffering with each other, Like the the more I think about long suffering and enduring and being patient, I think about the way God loves us. We'll never change to be just like Jesus. Like that's our verdict in heaven, but like we can't even go to Walmart without needing the Holy Spirit, you know? Like we're just not there and God is patient with us and loving us and he's not saying, if you change, I'll love you. That's religion. The whole essence of the gospel is watch this. I'll love him, I'll love her, I'll love them and watch what it does in their life. It just changes everything about them. He changes everything about him. God needs nothing from us. He wants everything for us. He doesn't want to manipulate us. He wants to transform us. Love gives. Are you giving or are you taking? Love is sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. Jesus dies because of our sin and Jesus is also a willing participant in the sacrifice. But he had to die and he was willing to die and God sacrifices him so that we can live. What does that mean? That love is not sentiment. Love is not self-preservation, okay? Love is not all about me. Love is lowering yourself to lift up someone else and love will require cost. Then back in um, 1998, when I met my wife, I thought I loved her. In the year 2000, when I married her, I thought that I loved her. When I started putting the toilet seat down, I thought that was love. When I started spending 30 bucks on spaghetti at Olive Garden, I thought that was love. When we started watching rom-coms on date nights, I thought that was love. It was, but it changes. And you start to realize the older you get, what love really looks like. And I think of my mama and papa and, and how they loved one another, were for one another. And I don't just mean emotions. I mean like when my papa got dementia and forgot who he was and whenever he was getting up in the middle of the night and peeing on everything and needed a catheter. And she's like, I will work your catheter. I'll put it in and I'll take it out. Y'all, I don't make Hallmark movies about that, about catheters. That's love. Like she cared for him, protected him. Like I'm gonna drive. No, you're not. She'd fight with him because she loved him. He'd gripe to me. Your wife have all these rules for you? Got any more coffee, ma'am? <laughs> she loved him. We buried him. And she loves him to this day. And she's going to be buried right beside him. That's love. That's sacrifice. That's lowering yourself, lifting up another. 
Like in your relationships, do you sacrifice? Do you lower yourself to lift up your kids? Do you lower yourself to lift up your church? That's what serving is. When you, when you guys serve, thank you and God bless you. You're lowering yourself. You're getting over yourself to love someone else's kids. That's a big thing, <laughs> to love someone else's kids. And someone's in there doing that right now. Some of you did that in the service before now and God bless you. When you serve others, you're sacrificing for them. Jesus became a man, stepped into human history to demonstrate his love for us. Jesus lived a righteous life to demonstrate his love for us. What do I mean by righteousness? I mean, he was fully man, but he never sinned. He never once broke God's commandments. That's how we can be made right because we get credit for what he did and he takes the blame for what we did wrong because he died in the place of sinful man to demonstrate his love for the father and for the father's people. Jesus raised from the dead to demonstrate the power of his love. This love is powerful. This is a powerful enough love to raise a man who's three days dead, D-E-D, dead, from the grave. His name is Lazarus. He was like three days stinky, dead, and God raised him from the dead by the command of Christ. This same power is the same power that can resurrect your three-day D-E, dead marriage. You're here today because you're like, this is the last straw. I don't know if we're gonna make it. Let the love of Christ the love of Christmas, heal your broken marriage. And it's, it's, the pathway forward is not gonna be emotion, it's gonna be sacrifice. Let this love, believe that this love can bring your wayward kid home for Christmas. It can bring the unbelieving spouse to belief because the work is that of Christ and we, our work is to be born again. Love is sacrifice. And then finally, love is grace-filled. There are people who will win our hearts. It's God made it that way. Um, there's a man named Michael Jordan who played basketball at North Carolina and took over the NBA through the mid 80s. He won our hearts unless you were a Pistons fan or uh, a Knicks fan. I hate it for you. I'm wearing his shoes right now. I'm a 40 year old grown man and I'm wearing the same shoes I wore in the fifth grade just because I'm a fan of what happened on the basketball court. I just think that's neat. There's people who, has, who have won your hearts, but I want you to know that's not the way God loves. Like we did not perform on the court of life and get God to go like, whoa, I need that one. That's not what's happening here. Love is grace-filled. What does that mean? We are ill-deserving and undeserving of God's love, okay? Respect and love, not the same thing. Impressed and love, doesn't have, it's not the same thing. Are there people in your life who don't deserve your affection, who are ill-deserving of your affection, yet you lay it across them anyways? You can love and not trust. You can love and not respect. You can love and not believe a word that comes out of their mouth because I just figure that's how Jesus relates to us, you know? But he loves us. How do we get this? That's what Nicodemus wants to know. How do I get love like that? If God loved the world, how does God love Nicodemus? Well, love can't be achieved by learning. You can't theologize your way into the kingdom of heaven. Some of you are trying that. I've done that. I'll read books by dead guys. I'll get really smart. I'll know a lot. And maybe me and God can connect on the academic level. No. Love can't be achieved by lifting. Lifting would be performing. I'll do good deeds. I'll fix my life. I'll be successful. I'll get God to notice me. And no, that's not how 
that's not how this works. Then how do we get it? How do we get born again? What is the thing that we do? If there's nothing we do and Christ does the doing, what do we do? We look. We look. In the way that Israel looked to that bronze serpent for life, we look to Christ on the cross for eternal life. We look. My favorite pastor, my favorite preacher, is a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. A lot of guys are good, but they ain't Spurgeon good, okay? And I love reading him. I love, there's so much about him I could tell you. And I got jokes that were his and the way he messed with young preachers. And it was just, he's, he would be a great guy to, to know from a distance, I think. <laughs> but here's his testimony. Spurgeon grew up Baptist and he was a young man, very young man. It was a very wintry morning and he's walking in the snow and there's a blizzard where he lives and he's trying to go to church and he's overwhelmed by the guilt of his sin. And he would come to Jesus like Nicodemus and basically looking for what good deeds, what books do I read, what things do I do to get God to take away the guilt of, of my sin. And he stumbles into a Methodist church. And if you're a Methodist here today, we love you, no shade, none of that. But Methodist, and ba- it ain't the same as Baptist. By providence, he stumbles into a Methodist church. The pastor's not even there because there's a blizzard outside. There's like five people in the room. And one of the lay members of the church, uh, one of the fellows got up there and he was reading scripture, preaching a sermon from Isaiah, I believe, that mentions look, look and believe. And Spurgeon summarizes and says that here is the, here's the summary of what the preacher says, and I'm gonna do my best not to try to use their accent, but it's gonna slip out as I read it. And it's, I did it last service and it sounded more Irish, so I'm doing my best not to do that, okay? Anyways. My dear friends, this is the Methodist pastor sermon. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't make a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I see, can't help it. And said he in broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. And some on ye say, we must wait for the spirits working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says, look unto to me. And then Spurgeon says, the pastor, as he preaches to five people or so, looks right out to Bobby as Spurgeon and says, young man, you look miserable. And Spurgeon says, well, I did, (laughs) but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. He said, however, it was a good blow and it struck right home. And he continued, and you'll always be miserable miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey this text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, you man look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. 
Grace Point Church, look and live. Christ suffered for you. He labored for you. He sweat great drops of blood for you. He gave his life for you. He conquered death and hell for you. All you need to do is look to him and believe in your heart that Christ raised from the dead and confess with your lips that he is the leader of your life and you will be saved and loved generously forever, sacrificially. You'll have a dad. Some of you don't know what it's like. Some of you only know manipulation. Some of you only know what it's like for someone to... um, Love you if you do this, if you do that. I'm telling you, it's a love like no other, and it'll change you and give you the capacity to love like no other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the gift of your son, Christ. Thank you for laboring for us and doing the work so that we could be born again. I pray, Lord, for my friends here today who find themselves manipulating in their relationships. I pray for my friends who feel guilty of using people. Father, we're so prone to use people to love money, use people to love power and influence. And Father, I pray that we would repent our ways into using power and influence to love our family. Father, that we would use money to love our friends and our neighbors and our church. Father, may we repent of using people and wanting things from people. May we want things for people. But really the only way we could love like that is if we first know your love. And so Father, I ask for my friends here today who've never tasted that, never felt the embrace of unconditional love, the love that comes from the throne of heaven, a love that reveals the kingdom of heaven, a love that makes someone born again. Father, I pray that you would dump a whole bucket full of that out on us today, that my friends could believe experience forgiveness and experience that love, Lord. A love that is not based in our performance, but rooted in the person of Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Father, I pray you would send your spirit to those who believe today that they may be saved. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.